and turn to the book of Jeremiah. The book of Jeremiah. It might seem to be a strange passage in the Bible to go for a missionary, right? But uh, there's actually a lot here. And uh, I have to avoid the the temptation of all preachers. You know, you, you go to a book like this and you want to... Make sure they get everything that's in there, right? And Jeremiah is one of the longer books, so we can't do that. So um, I'm telling myself, stay on the topic, stay on the topic, right? Because there's a lot here. And, um, you know, as a preacher, you, wanna, you want everyone to see and put all the pieces together, right? But what I wanted to do is share something from the book of Jeremiah. It's, it's actually a book of the Bible that I recently, in the last year or so, I've spent quite a bit of time studying and um, trying to put the pieces together. You know how it is. You can know a book, you kind of know who the person was, we know Jeremiah, we know a few things, but uh, you know, each of these books, especially ones that really detail the historical aspect of what's going on, it's, it's so important and so helpful to really understand not just a message that Jeremiah said, but understanding the context of when he was saying it, to whom was he saying it, what was going on, and all these things really bring so much of the original intent. And then that helps us with our application, doesn't it? It helps us a lot, right? You know, it's one thing to quote Jeremiah 33, 3, call unto me and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. But context is important too, right? We don't just want to take any old verse and pull it out and say, you know what? I've always wanted to run the decathlon and win. So, you know, call unto me and I will, and I will show thee great and mighty things and you're going to be an Olympian. You know, like, well, that's not necessarily what uh, Jeremiah was thinking or the Spirit of God when he wrote that, right? So uh, context is so, so, so helpful. And you know what I find so interesting about Jeremiah and the time is the more I study it, the more it seems so clear that not just America, but the whole Western world, I, it really feels like, is in a very similar scenario as Judah, the southern kingdom, was. And this is not so much um, even about COVID-19 or even just the recent things, but far more than that. We're talking the last 100 years, 150 years of history, and where America is heading, where Canada is heading, where Western countries in general are heading, and when you read the book of Jeremiah, I understand we need to remember the original context and not try to extrapolate something, right, or make Israel the church or something. You know, we're not trying to make this say something it's not. It's really about seeing what really happened. And when we see these things, I can't help but say, you know, that just looks a lot like what we're going through and what we're doing. If we think about America, I don't think it would be hard for any of us as believers to say it's pretty obvious that the light, and we say light, we mean the light of Scripture, the light of knowing truth, is, is fading in the Western world. There was a time when um, the majority of Americans, the majority of Canadians went to some kind of church somewhere, and those numbers apparently seem to continually decline. And even if the numbers aren't declining, you can be pretty sure that biblical literacy, biblical knowledge and understanding is really abysmal. You've seen some of these things where they'll do a, a study and they'll go ask 100 people, 1,000 people, you know, and they don't really know who Noah is. They don't really know who David is. They don't, 
We just, as Americans, we're very illiterate anymore. And I'm not saying Bible-believing Christians. I just mean as a society, we're very increasingly ignorant of the Bible. Nowadays, with a rainbow, what do you think most Americans anymore think the rainbow is all about? I don't, I, you know, I know there's a lot of us that know the real meaning of the rainbow, but a lot of people don't. What about the, uh, the ambulance? What's on the, what's on the side of an ambulance? There's always this icon that's like all over the place. You see a pole and some kind of weird serpent snake thing wrapped around it. You know, I've said that, and that, that's, we have an ambulance in Halloween, in Nunavut. And I remember one time um, being, there was a parade, and the, the, all the, the police went by, and then the fire trucks went by, and then the ambulance went by, and there was a, a lady from up north, and we, we knew her, we're a little friendly with her, and, and she knows us, and, and um, it just drove by slowly, and I, I turned her and I said, do you know what that picture means? She had not a clue. No idea. No clue at all. I don't know that most people would know any of that, right? They maybe have heard John 3.16 somewhere, but as a whole, we are becoming a very biblically illiterate country. And we know what comes with that. As the light of God's word, as the light of truth fades, so will a, a nation be destroyed. And Jeremiah is an interesting character in the Old Testament because God called him at a, a, a very interesting time in his life. And I'm not going to be able to get all these details, right? A lot of this is you do all the study and you try to write things down and then there's so many details. Please forgive me if I don't get them all, um, if I forget some of them. But it is really interesting when you do your timeline and you start looking at who was king, how old was this, and when was all this happening. Jeremiah was called in, in the first chapter... We're given a good bit of context here because it says, It came to pass in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. And it tells us a bit there. But if you go to other places and you see the things that God, what God is doing with Jeremiah, you start to put all the pieces together. And it's really, really interesting. If you do, if you do your research, you'll see that Jeremiah, he must have been a fairly young man when God called him originally because we have a good... 40-some years uh, in throughout the book of Jeremiah. It's not totally chronological. Chapter 1 to chapter, what is it, 50 or something at the end, it's not all chronological. Things jump around a bit for themes and stuff, right? But if you go through, you'll see Jeremiah lived during his, his calling as a, apparently had to be a young man, and he did live to quite an old age from what it's, it appears because it was 40-some years before Jerusalem fell, and he lived for a time after Jerusalem fell. So he was an older guy by that time. And you look at when he's called, who's the king? The king and the original when the calling. Now it says here in chapter 1, this particular part of the message is talking about when Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, in the 11th year of Zedekiah. But the first king that Jeremiah was with was Josiah. Do you remember what was significant about him? Very significant. Not just that I name one of my sons after him, that's not it, but uh, he was the last godly king. Do you remember how many were after him? Four. And it's interesting, it was basically, um, if I get my numbers right, I didn't have it all here, but uh, the first one was, um, you went in stages. It was two years, um, or two months, and 11 years. And the next guy was a couple months, and the next one was... 11 years. So it's basically 22, 22 and a half years total in these next four kings. Basically what you had was first it was Egypt, 
Then it was Babylon a couple different times coming in and saying, you're going to submit to us. And they say, oh, of course. And so the Egypt will come in and say, you chose Josiah's king. I don't like him. I'm going to pick one of his descendants that's a little more pliable, a little more flexible. And so he put someone else in. He lasted 11 years until he rebels. And then Babylon comes and says, hey, you're going to submit to us. You're not going to be king. You're not listening. We're going to put this guy in, right? The people chose him, but nope, I don't like him. And so that's why you have like four kings very rapidly. And the last king was Zedekiah. But it's interesting when you start reading through Jeremiah, there's some things that you'll see is that Jeremiah is called when he's got um, quite a few years left. He doesn't know exactly how long, but he has quite a few years of ministry during the king, king the reign of Josiah. It ended up being quite a few years. I can't I, I remember my numbers quite right, 13, 15, 16 years. And Josiah was a godly man. Josiah was trying to serve the Lord. And yet you read through the book of Jeremiah, you really don't see much of a positive outlook the whole time. You really don't see it. It's, it's all pretty negative. And it's interesting that it really appears that even though there was, Josiah led a revival, the king, there was a time of renewal, and a lot of good things happened. However, the message that God gave Jeremiah was, judgment's still coming. Judgment is still coming. You need to repent. And I, th I think it's interesting how that can happen even in our day. Things can go bad. You look at history, nations go through troubles, and people turn. Remember 9-11? What happened after 9-11? Everybody went to church. I remember I was ambassador. I was a freshman student, and I was in chapel at 9 o'clock, whatever it was, so that, you know, it was a little bit. Right at the end of chapel, someone came in and said they got the Twin Towers, and I'm from the Midwest. I didn't even know what the Twin Towers were. Like, I, what's that, you know? I grew, grew up in Kansas and Oklahoma. Never went to New York. So um, a lot of stuff was new to me. But, you know, how many, do you, do you remember those of us? Now, there's a lot of you. It's, it's, it's getting scary. A lot of you weren't there, but uh, us older ones, you know, we remember. And churches were packed, right? You know, this happened during Jeremiah's life. There were times when Babylon showed up and they were, their hordes were outside the walls. There's some interesting stories. We don't have time to go into all of them tonight. When Jeremiah, all the people came to the temple and they were, and Jeremiah sent Baruch, his scribe, and he's there and he's giving this message and the people are really listening and it seems like maybe they're going to turn, but the reality is they don't and judgment still comes. And you look at things like our Western countries, it really shook us up for a couple months, and right back to the old almighty American dollar, right? The almighty uh, self, the American dream, right? And God is, we just don't really have time to seek him. So some interesting things. Let me give some background here, then we'll look at some verses. Some things to consider during the good years. Jeremiah's life and times were very interesting and some interesting revelation to give us some insight to our day as well. Think about some of the things that were going on even after godly Josiah died and his ungodly kings were reigning. Think about this. The temple, even after Josiah, the godly king dies, for 22 plus years, the temple still stood. Beautiful things. Gorgeous. They were still having the sacrifices. They were still doing many of the things according to the laws of the Old Testament. You know, outwardly, a lot of things were still going the way they should. There were other, there was compromises and Baal was worshipped here and there. But, you know, during this time, the, the temple was still there. And do you see that in our lives often too? We can feel like, well, you know, this is still okay. We're, 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 we're fine. And we, we can kind of rely on 
externals for our security and not be perceptive enough, discerning to realize the foundations are gone. There's nothing to hold back the onslaught of the enemy. Whenever they decide to come, God's not with us. We're toast, right? And yet it's easy to rely on external things, right? And we need to be able to see beyond just externals and realize where things are headed. Did you realize too that during the time of Jeremiah, before and after the godly king, there were many prophets speaking in the name of the Lord. There wasn't necessarily a shortage of preachers. What was the problem? The problem was there was a shortage of accurate, godly preachers. There's passages in Jeremiah where Jeremiah is publicly chewed out by another, we'll say prophet, who was speaking in the name of, capital L-O-R-D, Jehovah God. He was speaking in the name of the Lord. And he told Jeremiah, you're wrong. And he got up and spoke very eloquently to the people. The Lord God has spoken. In just two years, these Babylonians will be gone and everything will be fine. And what do you do when there are two godly men that disagree? And they're both speaking in the name of the Lord. They're both using the Bible. And it's, a, it's confusion, isn't it? There were many prophets. There were even still some good, solid preachers around, like Jeremiah. They were still around. They weren't, he wasn't a compromiser. And Jeremiah, even during the toughest times, was still allowed to speak. There were times he was thrown in prison. There were times he was let out. It's really interesting stories, right? There's times when the king, the, his princes, they're very divided. The princes, they wanted to kill Jeremiah. Because when Babylon came and the city surrounded, what's Jeremiah doing? He doesn't change the message for the times. He says, um, I have a message, newsflash, it's the same as the last one, <laughs> hasn't really changed. But, you know, and the king would come to him multiple times and say, all right, do you have a word from the Lord? He'd say, yep, newsflash, nothing's changed. It's the same message as last time. And this would happen. Times he'd be put in prison. The princes wanted to kill him. And then God would work things out where the king would end up protecting him. Remember when he was thrown into a pit? And that was done, and they were attempting. They wanted to kill him. And then this, this man, an Ethiopian, named Ebed-Melech, that's just Hebrew for servant of the king, Ebed-Melech. And Ebed-Melech came to the king and said, he's going to die, he's in a pit, and mire, get him out. And he threw ropes, and they, he saved his life. And what did God tell Ebed-Melech through Jeremiah? He said, you have God's word on it. You'll be okay through all this. There's going to be a lot of destruction, but God will protect your house because you protected God's man. So interesting things there. So, you know, Jeremiah was not shut up all the time. He was even allowed to go to the temple and speak. So sometimes we can feel like, well, maybe everything will just be okay because, you know, we still got some good preachers around. But the message from God to Jeremiah was judgment is coming because this is a wicked, wicked nation. Now, it's important to know, to know too that even though God said judgment was coming, in the book of Jeremiah, you're going to see again and again God's message really was the same. Here's the general message of Jeremiah. You've rebelled against the Lord as a nation. You are going to be, there's going to be consequences for that. The basic message was accept the consequences and submit to Babylon. They will not break down your walls. They will not slaughter you. They will actually just take you into captivity. Just submit to them. That's your consequence, and God has ordained it. That was really all the message was. Now, you got to understand, you say, oh, that was easy, right? you got to understand, Jeremiah is saying that, but did Babylon do that to everybody? 
Not necessarily. That, you know, you just open the doors of, of your city. They might not do that, right? And this is life and death situations. This is, this is you know, this isn't like us today where we get, you know, cyber attacks. And it's like, oh, it's really inconvenient. It could cost a life. We're talking, you know, sticks and stones and, and darts and arrows. And we're talking, you know, swords and chopping heads off. And it's right there. It's not somewhere over in Afghanistan or somewhere over in the Middle East, right? It's, it's in your back door, shall we say. And it, was, it would take a real trust in the Lord to do something like that. And you're going to see, if you go through, you'll see Zedekiah, the last king, was given the last opportunity. And again and again, Jeremiah said, just submit. Just submit. God will take care of you. It'll be okay. And he told him, he said, you are going to Babylon, period. He told him, he told him, he, he said again and again, you're not going to die whether you listen to God or not. You are on a one-way ticket to Babylon, period. Now, the thing was, is because he would not submit, he ended up losing all of his children in a very, very sad situation, right? Remember, all the way up till the very end, they were um, besieged a year and a half, two years, by Babylon. Jeremiah told them, submit, let them in. You're going to Babylon. If you don't, it's going to be worse. And what he did was he tried to escape the, through a, an underground, something under the walls at night. After they breached the main gates, right? They breached that, so they're, you know, Jerusalem's a big city. It would take a while to slowly conquer the whole town. You'd have resistance block by block, right? You know, something you think of like in the Middle East where they'd come in and house by house, you'd have to take over a, a place. So they broke through the main defenses. So the king with some of his trusted soldiers through a tunnel of some kind escaped and they got all the way to Jericho. If you know your map, that's all the way down towards the Dead Sea. He got quite a ways, but they caught him. They brought him back to where the king of Babylon was stationed, and they took his sons, and one by one, in front of Zedekiah, the last king, they killed them, one by one by one. And then just to make sure that he would always remember that, they took his eyes out so that the last thing he ever saw was his sons being murdered. And guess where he went? A one-way ticket to Babylon, just like God said. But it didn't have to be that bad. Jeremiah was given the warning of coming judgment decades before it came, even before the time of revival. So tonight, what would you say was the core problem for Judah? What was the real, real problem? This is kind of the meat of what I'd like to share tonight as we close up. Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 8. This is kind of heavy. I don't want it to seem like um, your missionaries coming by to make everybody under the gun here and blaming you all for America's problems. I hope that's not exactly what is I'm portraying here. But um, this is a message that's really, really um, heavy on my heart because I believe as uh, God's people, this is a time for us to really seek the Lord like never before. This is a time to get I mean, it always is, but if it's like with Jerusalem and Babylon coming, right? Every day, it gets more serious, right? Every year, the consequences are only getting more significant. And as God's people, we need to be like Jeremiah, be like him, and do things like him, because he is that example in Scripture. Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 8, what, is the core, what was the real core issue? I want to take you basically to just two chapters here, two different verses, and I, I'm convinced this is the core issue right out of the book of Jeremiah. What was their problem? Chapter 2, verse 8. The priest said not. This is what they, the priests were not doing. 
Where is the Lord? Basically, what does that mean? They're not really seeking him. Were they doing the, all the feasts and the, the sacrifices and all that? Yes, but in their heart, they were not really seeking after the Lord. And they that handle the law knew me not. They didn't really know the Lord like they thought they did. The pastors, you say, oh, I thought pastor was only a New Testament thing. Well, remember, pastor is the idea of a shepherd. Even in the Old Testament, they had men, leaders, that were like shepherds of the people that would guide them and direct them. Elders, things like that. And so pastors also transgressed against me. And the prophets, wow, he's, he's naming, naming them all, priests, pastors, and prophets. It says, and the prophets prophesied, meaning they, they spoke, they taught by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. Isn't that interesting? Look at verse 13. God says about his people, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. It wasn't that the people were totally humanistic. I mean, like totally atheists. They were still very religious, but not in truth with the Lord God. Now, the last verse there with that is chapter 5 in verse 31, because here's the hinge pin. You know, wouldn't it be nice for all of you folks sitting in the pew to say, amen, missionary, you nailed it. That's kind of like America. You know what the problem is in our country? It's the, who was the first one? Um, the prophets. Who are they? They're kind of like pastors, spiritual leaders, right? And then you got pastors. Those are, in a sense, leaders. You could say even politicians, right? And then you've got, what was the last one? Um, pastors, all peace. Yeah? Pastors, prophets, and priests. So you know, think about it. You've got really all levels of leadership. You have the religious side. You have the political side, right? You've, you really have, the, you have a, a, a picture of the whole gamut of leadership, whether they be church leaders, professors at a Bible college, or professors of whatever, and, and then your politicians, everything. You've got the whole gamut of leadership in the nation. And wouldn't it be nice, all of us that sit in the pew on Wednesday night, to say, that's the problem. It's the pastors, it's the politicians, and it's those professors. It's all their fault, i.e., <clears throat> and not our fault, right? Wouldn't that be nice? Until you get to chapter 5 in verse 31. The prophets prophesy falsely. He's going at them again. Everybody, everybody shout amen because you're not one of them, right? Okay? Prophets are, are prophesying falsely. The priests bear rule by their means. And here's the ouch. What does it say? Can we read it together? And my people love to have it so. And what will you do in the end thereof? Yeah. First it was amen, now it's oh me, right? What was Judah's southern kingdoms? What was their real core issue? It wasn't just the leadership, but it was them. They had a lot of blame to be put on them. But the people liked it that way. Isn't that interesting? How different would the nations of the world be if the people would not tolerate bad preaching? 
They wouldn't tolerate it. We're not talking about lighting places on fire, violence, you know what I mean? We're not, please, I'm not talking about that. I just mean that we would not tolerate hypocrisies. We would not tolerate um, compromise. We would just say, we don't want that. We fear the Lord in the right sense of fear, right? We want to be faithful to him. So it really is that the core issue of, of Judah was it was everyone. It was the leaders, and the people liked it that way. When I think about our Western countries, I think about Canada, I think about America, I think about Europe, it's not hard for me to say, you know, I'm talking in a bigger, broader sense here. Seems a lot like that today, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. It really does, doesn't it? The core problem, the root issue was that from the politicians to the pastors, to the college professors, to all forms of leadership, they were not seeking God in truth, in sincerity, according to God's word. Oh, they did serve God according to their own understanding, but not in truth. And the people wanted it to, stay, to be that way and to stay that way. Psalm 11 verse 3 says, If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Brothers and sisters, what can we do if the foundations are gone? You know, I think about things like abortion in the States. And there's a lot of talk today, you know, about, oh, maybe, you know, with the justices we can do this and that. And you know what? I'll say, if we have any opportunity to put down wickedness, let's go for it. Amen. Thank God for it. But... We need to understand the foundations are very eroded. And all these things are not necessarily changing the foundation. But it's good to have some righteous laws or unrighteous laws put down. Amen. Thank God for that. to save lives, right? Just like uh, the banning of slavery. That's a great thing. But did that mean that America was truly on a path of following the Lord in all their ways? Well, look where we're at now. Something happened. <laughs> Something went wrong. So we need to understand. We need to take warning from things like, the temple's still there. Surely everything will be okay. No, it won't. I'm sure there were many Jews who thought, okay, we're not doing so great, but God would never let a heathen nation touch his temple. That's God's temple. You don't touch God's temple. I'm, I guarantee you that people thought that. No way. That's God's. We might not be all we should be, but God ain't going to let that happen. Oh, yes, he will. Remember, Christ came, and he threw, threw tables over and said, I'm not interested in this. We have to be very, very discerning in days like today. So just some, some application here. What do the faithful need to do then in our day? And I'm going to speak to you as though you are the faithful. But I, I do want us to be challenged a bit here tonight, too. Don't assume that you are the truly faithful just because you feel like it. Does that make sense? Right? Don't we, as Bible-believing, fundamental Baptists, we're, it's easy for us to kind of have, well, we're, we're, a, we're a whole lot closer over here than that church or that group or that organization. But just because we are, how do I say it? Just because we are less compromised, shall we say. You know, like, and you think about all the compromise there is to have, right? Just because we are less ungodly than other groups or other churches 
does that mean we are actually godly? That doesn't mean that we are. So what should we do in our day? What should the faithful do? What do we need to do? Let's look to Jeremiah and God, what he said to him. Let's go back to Jeremiah chapter 1, right here, a couple verses. Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 8. This is when God is specifically giving Jeremiah instructions, saying, go out and say this, go out and preach this, go out and do this. And Jeremiah was a lot like us. He was a human being. We tend to think, all oh, these men, they saw and talked with God, and I mean, if God came and talked to me, I'd probably be superhuman too. Like, no, these were real people that had to face other real people and other real people that sometimes wanted to kill them. Look what God told Jeremiah in chapter 1, verse 8. He says, Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee to deliver thee, saith the Lord. This has been something that God has been challenging me about. We have got to become just increasingly not affected by what society and what others think about our life. Because if you're honest, you know that when you know your boss or your family member that's not a believer, or even if they're believers, but they're not maybe seeking the Lord like they ought to be, or whoever it is, right? It could be a spouse, it could be a family, friends, neighbors, you know? And I don't like it when someone, when I have to, if there's a confrontational situation. And are we not affected by the face of other people? We all are to some degree. And Jeremiah had to be reminded, listen, God's telling him, Jeremiah, stop letting their face affect you. Do what I say to do. I've got your back. Stop fearing their faces. What does the scripture say in Proverbs 29, 25? The fear of man brings a snare. Brother and sister, if you are letting what other people think about you or what, what you do, or for the Lord, and, and seeking and following the Lord, then you are fearing, in a sense you're saying, you are the one, boss, relative, neighbor, whatever, I am going to submit myself to your view of God in life. And I'm going to conform my life to your views so that your face will shine upon me. And God says, isn't that ridiculous? If, you are, if you're letting the fear of men prevail in your life, you have to understand, that's a trap. We have fox traps up in the north. And, it, you know, if you, if it, you have probably all kinds of, do you do, do that stuff around here? Is that still legal? I don't know. Do people trap for animals? Yeah, okay. It's Maine, surely, right? Not Oklahoma, I don't think, but, uh, <laughs> you know. Have you ever heard of somebody, a human, stepping in one accidentally? Anybody heard of that? Has that happened around here, maybe in the old days? I've heard of, like, sometimes up north there'll be a dog that's, you know, they're on with their owner, but somebody put one a little too close to town and animals have gotten caught by those. I've watched a person put a stick in some of those, and I'm telling you, I would never want my pinky toe in one of those, right? Those things are brutal. But you think about a snare. God says, if you fear men, that's a snare. Proverbs 28, verse 1 says, the wicked flee when no man is pursuing, but the righteous are bold as a lion. What is it we need to do in light of all this? First of all, we need to stop fearing men and truly fear the Lord. And not a afraid, scared to death because he's unpredictable. He's not. He's totally predictable. He's totally righteous and good and merciful. But live as though his standard is what matters. What he thinks, a preacher once said, right? Living for the audience of one. And sometimes that means resisting 
even people that are near and dear to you. Resisting what they want for your life, right? Resisting. Secondly, what do, we, what do the faithful need to do? We need to have true repentance over our sins. True repentance. And not just for our sins, but for the sins of our people, of our nation, of our time. Right? Look at Jeremiah 9. We're just about done. Jeremiah 9. Look, I, I just was um, you know, moved again when I read this. You know, what was Jeremiah called? He was called the something prophet. Weeping prophet. Here's why. At least one of the places. Jeremiah 9, verse 1. He said, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place, a wilderness, a faraway place from other people, a place of wayfaring men, that I might leave my people and go from them, for they be all adulterers, an assembly of treacherous men. That's really a twofold expression here. He's saying, oh, I could just cry all day. You think he's just saying that for emphasis, or did he really cry? You know, we don't cry over things that don't matter. Crying is that response when something has happened that has really, we have connected with it. And Jeremiah, when he looked at his people and he, with discernment, could see in his mind's eye the judgment that was coming, the children that would be destroyed, the families and all these horrible things that were coming and, and God's glory just thrown into the, the mud of society, right? All these things, he, he just cried, he wept. Do, does the sins of Maine bother you? What about, you know, it really needs to start with home, home, home. Does the sin in your life bother you? Or is it, yeah, you know, not a big deal. Does the sin of, the sins that crop up in our church does that ever happen, Pastor? Sin in church? Never, right? <laughs> it happens, right? We have a church family up north too, and, and we have sin sometimes in our, in our group, right? And we have to seek the Lord and, and find, you know, forgiveness and sometimes confessions or whatever. But does sin in our church family bother us? Does sin in our country bother us? Where are the tears? Not a made-up, drummed-up, emotional thing to, you know, just be emotional. But I mean, true, sincere, oh God, we have, we have really offended you. Please forgive us. And then verse 2, oh, that I had a wilderness, a lodging place. Away. I just, you know, it's so easy to get used to sin around us, right? It doesn't really bother us anymore. You know, it's on the TV all the time. God forbid, but, you know, many times I think in our Christian homes with our entertainments, we get so used to junk that it just doesn't really bother us anymore, right? I mean, nowadays, kids' cartoons, it's amazing what's on a rated G or whatever it is, you know, it's incredible. Does it bother us anymore? I hope so. We need true repentance. We need to stop fearing men. And lastly, it's not a verse so much with it, but we need true discernment, like Jeremiah, to perceive the end of our present condition, the end of where we're headed, not just where we're at at the moment. You know, isn't it so easy to do that? We can get so caught up with what's happening right here. And there are things to do right now and here. But we need the discernment like Jeremiah to see. Josiah's reigning. Things are pretty good right now. But we are headed in the wrong direction. 
Judgment is coming. I wanted to be an encouragement to us tonight because I know, I'm convinced, that all of us here are facing, and it will only increase, I believe, unless there's some kind of revival or something that I, I, I don't really see happening right away, but um, it's going to increase. Pressure, pressure, pressure. Are we ready to stand with the Lord? And if we're not ready, if we're still fearing what other people might think within our family, within our church family, within our community, whatever it is, if we're fearing their faces, we are not fearing the Lord. And this is a time, I believe this, we are living in times that will continually be a sifting. It's going to sift out who truly believes and who doesn't. Sifting, sifting, sifting. So now as believers is a time to really get serious, I think. I mean, I'm sure your pastor or others say these things too, but this is a time to say, am I a part of the problem or am I a part of the solution? How we say, well, pastor, or everybody calls me pastor of North, right? But Paul, how would, uh, how would I know if I'm a part of the problem or the solution? Well, if we go back to this, the pastors, the priests, the prophets, all them, many, so many were not seeking the Lord with all their heart in truth. If you're not one of them, you should question yourself. How tolerant am I of sin in my life or compromise in other situations? Am I just kind of okay with that? You know, not a big deal. Or do I really seek the Lord to walk faithfully with Him? Those of us that are leaders, are we just kind of going with the flow or are we willing to stand where the Lord stands and let the consequences come? And seek Him, seek Him, seek Him. Seek Him with all your heart. Be a part of the solution, not a part of the problem. I don't know that we will see any great revival, especially if you read Revelation. It seems like we know where things are headed anyway, right? But the Lord is going to do great things. We may experience things like the Jews going into Babylon. You gotta, we're going to need to be a Daniel. Purpose in your heart that you will not defile yourself with the king's meat. We are in a changing society and culture, and they want you to defile yourself to fit in. You're going to have to make some decisions. I'm going to have to make decisions, right? In Canada, things are changing, I would dare say, faster than they are here. Faster. And I always had said years ago that, uh, like coming out of college or, you know, 10, 12, 15 years ago, I would say things like, you know, I wouldn't be surprised totally if by the time I may be an old man, if I live that long, you know, you could end up in jail for certain things. You know? And... Um, it's coming faster than I think we thought. But is that a bad thing or is it a good thing? Well, maybe it's a judgment, but I believe God is wanting to sift his people. He'll use it. Are we ready to stand? We've got to learn to be a Daniel now. It's really not that bad yet, but it can get a whole lot worse. And I believe Jeremiah is a good place to go to see how God used his men, his people, to stand in a very difficult time. Could I encourage you all? Do a study. Read Jeremiah. It's a long book. Read it. Start putting the pieces together and see how Jeremiah faced these different situations. Baruch, Ebed-Melech, these different ones, and see how God delivered them through it all. Jeremiah is such a tremendous example. Think about him. An old man. Must have been 60, 70 some years old, possibly older, 80, when Jerusalem fell. And he had a golden ticket. I'll close with this. You know what happened when Jerusalem fell? Babylon came in. 
He's in the court of the king. That's where they kind of had him in house arrest until the walls fell. He had a golden ticket opportunity right at the end. The general of the Babylonian army was instructed because they had heard that Jeremiah was in there telling everybody to surrender. So they actually said, hey, this is not a bad guy. <laughs> he, he's, you know, he wasn't really fighting us. They knew he spoke for the Lord. He, he was not wishy-washy. And so the general came to him and said, look, Jeremiah, you have your options. I've been instructed. Whatever you want, you can have it. He says, you can come back with me. I'll take you to Babylon. You will be treated basically like royalty. You'll be taken care of the rest of your life. You will not be in hardship. You'll be taken care of. But if you want to stay here, you can stay here too. Now think about it. You're 80-some years old. Everything's in, in fire and ruins, right? There's no pharmacy anymore. There's no, like, all the infrastructure is gone. And the people that are left are a remnant that are rebellious still. You'll read the end of Jeremiah. They were still rebellious at the end. That's why they went to Egypt, right? He had a golden ticket, full, a full retirement package at a very advanced society of Babylon. And there were other believer Jews there that needed help, right? And he said, nope, I'll stay with God's people right here. That, what a decision. And then the Jews that are left, they get all scared. They think Babylon's going to come back because there was a conspiracy. And the man that Babylon set up, he was assassinated. It's another interesting story. And uh, so all of them are like, oh, well, maybe we should run to Egypt just to be safe from Babylon. They're going to be mad at us. And Jeremiah says, newsflash, here we go again. God says, stay right here. It'll be okay. And the people say, no, we're scared. We're going to Egypt. And what's the last thing we hear of Jeremiah at the end? Nothing else is that, I, that I know of, unless I'm missing something in another book. What's the last thing we hear of Jeremiah? He tells the people, it's not going to end well, but I'm coming with you. And he stayed with God's people and traveled with them to Egypt. What a man. It wasn't about him. It wasn't about his convenience. It wasn't about his retirement. It was, I'm going to serve the Lord and do whatever it takes, even if it means following these rebellious people to the end, but I'll preach God's word to them. I hope that's what some of you mothers will be with your children. Some of you fathers will be with your churches, with your sons and your daughters. Be faithful. The pressure is going to increase, but that's okay. Follow the Lord. Be faithful and let God write your story. Amen. Let's pray and pastor, I'll turn it over to you. Lord, I